c'est vrai. Je suis un ananas. Now, in the uh, towers of uh, Edmonton... I'm not a I don't speak on both sides. I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict. Welcome back to Fat, French, and Fabulous. I'm Jessica. And I am Janelle. Also, despite the fact that Jessica and I live on opposite coasts and have not seen each other in more than a year, we managed to catch the same cold uh, at the same time. <laughs> that, so, is, that is true. We both <laughs> this have is just the a deep Janelle and Jessica are sick cough. episode. I, I think Janelle infected me through the phone line. That is my theory. <laughs> it's proof that Jessica is the dark link of Janelle. Aught but a dark reflection. <laughs> But it is a Janelle week, so it is time for my two favorite things, uh, which is murder and New York City. Not necessarily Yay! in that order. It varies by the day. <laughs> Best of all, murder in New York City. So today we're talking about the case of Michael Malloy, a man who came to be known as Iron Mike or even Mike the Durable, which just really rolls off the tongue. Uh, Bit of a mouthful. I mean, to be to be clear... This man was not durable enough to avoid getting fucking murdered. Considering um, he's the victim, I mean... Yeah, he still died. That's durable with an asterisk. He still he got a cool nickname out of the deal, which is most more than most murder victims get. It's certainly a step up from 37 Stab Wounds McGee. Mike the Durable sounds like an especially thick brand of condoms made out of real natural rubber. You can't feel... Anything, but they sure are durable. Durable, durable Mike's sounds like a brand of like natural sheep gut condoms. That's a good description. <laughs> if you want to be able to fuck the gas can of your car, <laughs> you you reach for a durable mic. If you want no sensation and a condom that'll stop a bullet, go for durable mics. Good. <laughs> Grab a Durable mic. Fuck a blender. You only live once. Um, <laughs> but no, Durable mic is not a brand of condoms that lets you fuck kitchen appliances. Durable mic was actually a man. So in 1932, Michael Malloy was a homeless man who generally hung out in the neighborhood of Morrisania in the Bronx. I actually work in Morrisania. And it might have the dubious honor of being one of the only NYC neighborhoods that is significantly worse now than it was in 1932. Which, wow. There was so much happening in 1932. It was a little boomtown in 1932. It was up and coming. It was on the rise. Yeah, now it is just, it's methadone clinics and public domestic violence. For, like, 40 blocks. <laughs> when you can say, wow, it sure has gone hill downhill since the Great Depression, it's not been going good. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's substantially worse now than it used to be. There is a woman who stands in the middle of 3rd Avenue with a plastic vuvuzela and just screams messages from God on the highway. It's, it's not a good neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's not good. It's not good at all. <laughs> it's like since the 1930s, we have the exact exact same average income in real terms and the exact same polio rate. 
my work uh, hired a psychologist from another state to come in and give like a, a presentation on trauma focused therapy or whatever it was that we were learning. But this guy, his first fucking time ever in the Bronx, he gets off the subway and immediately sees an armed robbery taking place in the subway. Like oh he just boy. he gets off the train, is like, man, so this is the Bronx, and just somebody's got a gun. <laughs> And he was like, so how do you guys, like, how do you help your clients deal with that? We're like, yeah, it's the Bronx. That's not really traumatic. That's just yeah. background noise. Like, it's fine. <laughs> that's, that's not traumatic. <laughs> that's the average trip to the bodega. I was coming home from work the other day, and, like, there's a ton of FDNY firefighters at my regular subway station that, where I catch the train in the Bronx. And, like, they're they're all huddled around the entrance of the subway station. And I was like, oh... Can I go down there? And they're like, well, it's on fire. I was like, so is that a no? <laughs> He's like, no, I mean, the far end of the platform is the part that's on fire. Just catch it at the near end. And I was like, yeah, all right. Uh, and I did. Cool, cool. I'm dead inside. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, the fact that your first instinct is to go like, is that a yes or a no? It was a yes. <laughs> I mean, you could go down there. You can. <laughs> you can. They, I, I guess they were just informing me that the station was on fire the same way that you just tell a stranger the weather. Yeah. It's just so it's, you know, just making conversation. You can go down there. There's a little bit of a blazing inferno. So you're going to want to bring an umbrella. <laughs> yeah, that's that's just that's just New York small talk with a fireman. It's it's fine. Got places to be. In fairness, remaining in that part of the Bronx longer than you have to is probably higher risk than getting into an on-fire subway car. You're probably inhaling fewer carcinogens in the burning train. You're coming out ahead. Yes. <laughs> but uh, when Mike Malloy was living there, it was not just a festival of sadness. It was... A little bit of a boomtown. Immigrants were coming into the neighborhood. A lot of Irish and Italian immigrants were starting to set up businesses, which is actually how this whole story goes entirely sideways. Um, Italians starting businesses was good for most people. It was not good for Mike. <laughs> uh, so very little is known about Mike Molloy's life before he became involved in the murder plot that would eventually kill him. There wasn't a lot of people uh, writing in-depth biographies of the local homeless color? No. Not a ton? No, and according to uh, contemporary news articles at the time, Mike himself didn't seem to know a whole lot about Mike. There wasn't much to know. It. I mean, I don't want to lead with stereotypes, but he was a just a flat-out alcoholic. He was an Irish homeless alcoholic in New York City in 1932. What we do know is that he was born in County Donegal, Ireland, and at some point immigrated to the United States. This was back in the day where you just, the immigration requirements were that you show up and that you not have tuberculosis. Yeah. They were just, yeah. just get on a boat, you're good. It's funny, if you look through Ellis Island records from around that time, you will find shit like, how did this person arrive? Stow away? <laughs> like, let them in? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't care you're a strapping young lad you can lift potatoes welcome to america if you if you got all your own limbs and you don't have scurvy you're in you're in yeah now i mean you have to marry an american that's that's the rule pucker up that's the rule back then you just had to not be actively contagious and janelle just wasting her time down there dating a frenchman 
I god damn it, of all the people I had to swipe right on, I picked one that doesn't have citizenship. Yeah. What a fool I have been. You're never gonna get your green card like this. I'm gonna have to pose as somebody's underage child. <laughs> Who wants to adopt me? <laughs> Bulletproof immigration plan. The sources don't seem to agree on what he actually did for a living. Um, even contemporary sources about the case list wildly different occupations for Mike. Some say that he was a former New York City fireman. Some say that he was a former tradesman. Um, one Brooklyn newspaper had him down as a stationary engineer on Fulton Street. And some say that he never really had much of a career. Regardless of what he actually did, he had somehow fallen on hard times and he ended up as a homeless alcoholic in the Bronx. I don't even know what a stationary engineer is off the top of my head. It's an engineer. I didn't either. I, I had to Google this. It still exists. This is still a profession you can have. It's an engineer that maintains large pieces of industrial equipment. Okay. So just like large stationary machines. It's just you're you're maintaining stuff that typically doesn't go anywhere. It stays put. You fix it. That's the whole job. Yeah, because like I'm just like, <laughs> did, did did he design pens? What the fuck? <laughs> what is a stationary this is engineer? A fine notebook crafted by the finest engineering minds we have. Uh, no, we don't we don't entirely know what he did for a living, but he seems to have had some sort of tradesman career, and then he ended up homeless. Among things that we don't know about him is his age. He was estimated to be in his late 50s or early 60s. He was 60-ish. Although apparently he looked 75, because it's somewhat yeah. difficult to accurately estimate the age of a hard-lived alcoholic. If you are a hard-drinking homeless alcoholic, you could be 30 and look 300. It's not an easy <laughs> lifestyle. No, especially not back in the day. Alcohol is legal now, so you can be pretty sure that it doesn't contain, like, actual paint thinner. This is the height of Prohibition. There was, like, actually a huge problem in Prohibition where people would straight up steal industrial alcohol. Like, not ethanol, industrial alcohol. Or even, like, it was ethanol. Denatured alcohol. Methanol. They they will even when they have industrial ethanol, they used to poison it as a way of deterring thefts, which didn't deter thefts, but sure caused widespread deaths. I mean, it's the same reason that they make mouthwash a little intense to drink. People, unfortunately, desperate times, desperate measures. But yeah, so Mike had been an alcoholic throughout Prohibition, which meant. God knows what he was consuming. There was probably a lot of wood alcohol involved. Probably a fair amount of toilet cleaner. Oh, we're, we're gonna talk a lot about wood alcohol. But uh, on, on Mike's gravestone, they just kind of called it, uh, born 1873. They took their best guess. Eyeballed it. Looks about right. Yeah. Mike was known to be a fairly harmless presence in the neighborhood. He was not your scary drunk. He was fine. He had no known friends or family members to speak of. He just kind of spent most of his time by himself, hanging around the local speakeasies. He would do odd jobs around the neighborhoods, like sweeping alleyways and hauling away trash in exchange for alcohol. And since he was willing to be paid in alcohol instead of money, he was actually quite popular with local speakeasy owners. 
But, but but basically what you're telling me is he was the social equivalent of an untethered kite. Essentially. The Daily Mirror actually described him as, quote, flotsam and jetsam in the swift current of underworld speakeasy life, those no longer responsible derelicts who stumble through their last days of their lives in a continual haze of Bowery smoke. That's poetic. Yeah, it's a fancy way of saying he was kind of a bum. Kind of a god help us. Uh, one of Mike's favorite haunts was a speakeasy called Marino's on the corner of 171st Street and 3rd Avenue that was owned and operated by 27-year-old Tony Marino. According to a Smithsonian article on the case, Mike Malloy would show up at Marino's every morning, say, Another mornin's mornin' if you don't mind, in a thick Irish brogue, which I just fucking murdered. <laughs> that's not an Irish brogue. Ignore me. That's a, that's a leprechaun with a concussion. Um... <laughs> uh, but basically, he would show up, ask for alcohol, drink until he lost consciousness, just kind of lay on the floor for a little bit until he regained consciousness, and then he'd shuffle out the door. Just live in the fucking dream. Uh, good life. That was Mike Malloy's whole life. Just having your daily blackout. Healthy. Passing out on, a, on the floor, part of every balanced breakfast. <laughs> and that's gotta be it's a sticky 1932 speakeasy floor peel yourself off slowly so as you can imagine Mike didn't actually have the money to pay for his liquor half the time and so Tony Marino began letting him drink on credit which seems like a terrible idea but don't let me tell you how to run your illegal speakeasy but uh there's no way he can pay you back <laughs> yeah don't extend unlimited credit to people who have no income no fixed address. <laughs> Absolutely no means. Just This is a man whose only visible means of support is his legs. And they're not looking too steady. <laughs> Don't do it. Do not. Um It was kind of part of the speakeasy business was that you were you had a lot of disreputable customers and they weren't consistent about paying your debt about paying their debts. So by July of nineteen thirty two, Mike had effectively stopped paying his tabs and was in substantial debt to Tony Marino. That, that just seems cruel, right? Like, it just seems cruel it to is. extend... Because, like, either give it to him or don't. But don't... Don't indebt him. Don't give him enough rope to hang himself. Like, yeah. Yeah, like, even if he fully intends to pay you back, he fucking can't. He can't. No, he absolutely can't. This is not a man who can fulfill his promises. He's not. He's really not. Marino knew that this was debt that he had little hope of ever collecting on. Because when you sell a flagrantly illegal product, it is kind of hard to collect on your debts or get any kind of enforcement on that. What are you gonna do? Call the cops? He's, he's basically the equivalent of a drug dealer at this point. He, this is not like people buying kitchen furniture on layaway. This is, you're buying an illegal substance. Like, this is like if you had a tab for crack. Can you imagine... Just having, like, you know, like, oh, I just put it on my dab, Johnny. Oh. But, like, it's actually cocaine. Yeah, I work in, I work in Morrisania. I can imagine that vividly. I've... This is a terrible it's, idea. It's a thing. It's not a good thing, but it's a thing. That's a very good way to end up in modern day, in a modern day slavery. Yes. Can confirm. Uh, not from personal experience, because I get paid to deal with it all day. Yeah, Janelle, Janelle has a good job. She doesn't have to buy her crack in uh, in installments. <laughs> no, I buy my crack in cash, thank you. <laughs> um, like a lady. <laughs> <laughs> Marino's speakeasy business wasn't doing very well in general, and he was starting to have some financial issues. 
so he certainly couldn't afford to have a heavy drinker like Mike Malloy skipping out on his tabs. A frustrated Tony Marino discussed his financial issues with two of his... three of his friends. I can't count. 24-year-old Frank Pasqua, who worked as an undertaker in East Harlem. 28-year-old Joseph Murphy, who was his bartender at Marino's Speakeasy. And 29-year-old Daniel Kreisberg, a grocer and father of three, who was the only person in this whole story to have no criminal history. <laughs> um, yeah, when, spoiler alert, everyone involved in this story got arrested, the only address Joseph Murphy was able to provide was that of the Bronx County Jail. So I'm assuming he was less than reputable. Most reliable place to find me. <laughs> so Tony Marino told his friends that his business was not doing well, and Frank Pasqua, the undertaker, reportedly looked down to the end of the bar saw an already wasted Mike Malloy drinking a glass of whiskey, and casually suggested that they just fucking off the guy for insurance money. Wow. Yeah, just that's his first fucking solution. Like, hey, I know. Insurance fraud. Let's do it. As an undertaker, he had a lot of connections in the life insurance industry. <laughs> this is this is where this came from. He said that he could help Marino make all the arrangements in exchange for a cut of the money. And what I love about this is that they just casually made plans to murder a dude while he was right fucking there. I mean, at least wait until he's out of the room, guys. That's just rude. Plotting someone's murder while they're less than ten feet away from you is a tad gauche. It's just not what is done. At best, impolite. <laughs> Poor social graces. But what's even more incredible, it seems like, hey, let's just fucking ice someone to save your business is kind of a wild suggestion to just casually make in conversation. It wasn't actually that out there of a suggestion because it wasn't the first time Tony Marino had done it. The previous year, in 1931, Tony had apparently befriended a woman named Mabel Carson. There is even less information available about Mabel than there is about Mike, but apparently she was a local alcoholic homeless woman who was also down on her luck. Marino convinced her to take out a $2,000 life insurance policy on herself and name him the beneficiary. Which seems mm. like that's it's a big ask. It's a sketchy ask. You're basically just straight up saying like, "Hey, I'd really like to kill you. <laughs> uh, for, would you for mind money. making it profitable for me?" It's a little suspicious. Make it worth it's my not while. A thing normal people ask if they're not planning to fucking off you. Like two thousand dollars doesn't ring alarm bells in two thousand nineteen money, because it's not two thousand nineteen money. We've mentioned this a couple times on the podcast before, but it is actually quite difficult to convert old-timey money into modern money because it's it's not a simple mm -hmm. thing. The purchasing power of money changes over time. Certain goods become more expensive, certain goods become less expensive, and the relative cost isn't really the same thing over the course of a century. It yeah. gets difficult. And the things that you have to buy change, like... This amount of money will buy me much whale oil and many fine quills. Like, that's just completely meaningless today. We have no idea what that fucking means. Yeah, and generally speaking, what they do instead is they sort of create this basket of consumer goods that they track the prices of over time, and that's how inflation is tracked. It's not a perfect method. It's just like, how much did cauliflower cost in the 1930s versus how much did it cost in the 1950s? But then there was, like, a massive spike in cauliflower costs recently, so they had to remove it. 
Interesting. It's a that's a weird piece of trivia that you carry in your brain. I think it was due to agricultural conditions in the United States that just like just jacked up the cost of ca- cauliflower and just fucked up every economic model from here to Timbuktu. Your brain burns actual calories so it can hang on to information about cauliflower price inflections, which is a vegetable you don't enjoy. It tastes like if broccoli died. <laughs> if you ever decide to take up like a raw, unprocessed vegan diet, please get life insurance and make me the beneficiary first. But regardless, $2,000 in 1932 money is not chump change. By most estimates, it works out to be somewhere in the ballpark of $35,000. That's a suspicious amount of money to have someone take out in life insurance to name you the beneficiary. Yeah, never mind just, like, a homeless woman. She also probably can't afford to make payments on the policy, so you're paying to keep someone else's life insurance policy active. That's only worth their while if you die quickly. And die quickly she did. The longer you live, the less valuable the payout. Yeah, you gotta die fast in order for this to be worth it. On a cold winter night, Marino filled Maribel with many, many drinks until she passed out. Then he stripped her naked, doused the sheets and her body with cold water, and pushed her bed next to an open window for the night. She froze to death in her bed, but Marina was able to get a sketchy medical examiner to list her cause of death as pneumonia, and he cashed in on the policy without anybody being the wiser. They just froze this woman solid, like a fucking cod fillet, and they're like, yeah, sure, that's pneumonia. Yeah, they were like, well, she's a woman-sickle, but, I mean, fluid in the lungs, that's just what did it. So needless to say, when Frank Pasqua suggested pulling the exact same stunt with Mike Malloy... Tony Marino was all in, because he is a terrible, terrible person. And Mike Malloy was the perfect victim. He was already very rough-looking. Like I mentioned, many people thought that he was 60 going on 75. Yeah, he already looks kinda dead. He's half-pickled. Marino thought that Mike would be an easy target because they probably wouldn't even have to do anything. They figured that Mike was actually already on his last legs and only had a couple months left in him anyway. They figured they could just let him live his raging alcoholic lifestyle, and that nature would probably take its course in the next few months with no intervention. So at this point, they weren't really planning a crime so much as they were, like, strategically betting on a man's liver. He's basically at his best before date. (laughs) They're playing seriosis roulette. That's what this is. The Murder Trust, as they came to be known in the press hatched their plan to take out life insurance and profit off the death of Mike Malloy, which they, at that point, saw as inevitable. They mean, Mm. everybody's death is inevitable, but they saw his as especially inevitable and also imminent. Man, hedge funds have only gotten better over time in terms of morality. (laughs) I would have never suspected. Who Who knew? The very first literal vulture capitalists. (laughs) So besides the main four, later five people involved in the murder trust, the murder plot also included John McNally, Edward Tin-Ear Smith, who was nicknamed for the fact that he had a fake ear, although it was actually made of wax instead of tin, Tough Tony Bastoni, and his best friend Joseph Maglioni. And I fucking swear to you, those are their real names. That was in a newspaper. Tough Tony... Can you say it again? Tough Tony Bastoni and his best friend Joseph Maglioni. <laughs> Those are that real like names. the beginning of those a are... really rude limerick 
that should be like banned for like anti-Irish racism. Yeah, this just this just sounds like an anti-Irish spaghetti western at this point. It basically yeah. is, to be perfectly honest. Can you can we sue reality for being racist? I don't know. I think the reason they haven't made this story into a movie is because people would be like, "No, it's not realistic. Who the fuck? This is corny." The thing about the thing about reality versus fiction is like fiction is it has to have a certain believability to it, whereas reality has no such qualms. <laughs> yeah, all of these guys were real people. They were all petty criminals, and they were all regulars at Marinos. Also. I can pretty much guarantee that everyone listening to this has been wondering about mob involvement since I mentioned a man named Tony Marino running a speakeasy in 1930s New York. There's a very high Tony concentration in this story already. Yeah, and before anybody wants to get all like, hashtag not all Italians are in the mob, uh, no, absolutely all of these men had mob connections. This is just literally exactly what it looks like. I mean, none of these men were, like, mob bosses, but they did- they had mob connections, so- Because of course they did! How else would they get the alcohol to serve fucking patrons? Yeah, you can't just order that shit on Amazon. Like, you have to have- you gotta know a criminal in order to sell an illegal product. That's just kinda how it works. You individually, as like a- as like a casual speakeasy owner- do not have the kind of logistics infrastructure that you can just source this yourself. <laughs> You're just in your basement, like, lovingly hand-fermenting sugarcane to make rum. Stomping grapes with your bare feet. It's not particularly viable when you live in New York. So actually getting the life insurance in place took several months and required some pretty seriously shady dealings. Frank Pasqua obviously had some connections in the life insurance world because of his job as an undertaker, and he was able to find an unscrupulous life insurance agent who allowed them to take out three life insurance policies that would pay out a total of $3,576, although I've seen the amount of $2,2776 quoted as well. It's a lot of money either way, in the event of Mike's accidental death. Again, historical currency conversion is difficult, but it's somewhere in the ballpark of fifty-five to $67,000 that was taken out in life insurance. Which is, it's enough to make it worth your while, especially if you think this man could drop dead any day on his own. They had a heavy amount of confidence that Mike wasn't gonna make it. <laughs> oh, and they were fucking wrong. Mike was the sturdiest human who ever lived, but we will get into that. Uh, the amazing unkillable homeless man. It, it, it's interesting because, like, no matter what you were doing, if it was illegal, the mob had a hand in it in this era. Like, most gay people in this era, if they were in any way active, had mob connections, quote-unquote. Because the only way you can go to a gay bar is if that gay bar is being run by mobsters. Like, yeah! There's, there's, there wasn't any other options. And in a vacuum of options, you end up feeding into these kinds of criminal empires. Like, just the very fact of prohibition probably created this boom in organized crime that we see during this era. The Manhattan Costco is built on, like, the ground zero of, like, Italian Harlem organized crime. It's just impossible to avoid. This is, this is a very dense city. We all live on top of each other. You're gonna make some weird connections. 
But even in those days, you couldn't really take out large amounts of life insurance on a complete stranger without their knowledge, for obvious reasons. So the way that they got around this is that Frank Pasqua got a friend of his named Nicholas Mellory, or at least that's the fake name that he used, who claimed to be a florist in the funeral industry to come with him to the insurance office, and they pretended that this was the man they were taking the insurance policy out on. So basically the plan was that they were going to take an insurance policy out on Nicholas Mellory, kill Mike Malloy, and then just pass him off as Nicholas Mellory to collect the money. I've also seen articles where they stated that they just got the forms and they got Mike to sign them in an intoxicated state, but this Nicholas Mellory seems to be the most common version that's recounted. So they made a fake person, got one of Frank Pasqua's shady friends to pass himself off, and then they were just gonna present them a random dead white guy and collect the money. It's foolproof. Like, they, I, I assume they didn't think anyone was gonna look too close. No! And this was well before the age of, like, computerized photo ID. This was... You, you just kind of had to eyeball it. Like, yeah, that looks mm. like a dead Irish dude who's about 60. Fuck it. Sure. Close enough. Basically. And I mean, the one security thing was that neither Marino nor Frank Pasqua could be the beneficiary of the life insurance policy because they were not kin. So to get around this, they had the bartender, Joseph Murphy, pose as Nicholas Mellory's brother. He just put himself down as Joseph Mellory, because then he would be the one who got to identify the deceased when he died. So some some knee-high security. You can just step right over it. I also like that they didn't question the fact that, like, he was old enough to be his father. Murphy was 32 years younger than Mike Malloy. What kind of bigoted... Like, you just think that they have that many siblings that, like, you know... You know They're the Irish. Irish like... They reproduce like rabbits. Fuck it, he's got a brother who's 32 years younger than him. And, you know, maybe Joseph Murphy was just a really hard-worn-looking 28-year-old. Yeah, I, I just assume everybody from the 1930s just looked haggard. Everybody aged in dog ears. Like yogurt in the sun. But regardless, all the life insurance was eventually in place, and the men figured all that they'd basically hatched the perfect crime. Now all they needed was for Mike to just hurry up and drink himself to death. That, however, proved to be much more challenging than expected, because apparently the elderly alcoholic Irish dude they were trying to kill happened to be the most fucking indestructible person on the face of the earth. So, once all the life insurance was in place... In December of 1932, Mike Malloy walked into the speakeasy one day, and Marino told him that he had been granted an unlimited bar tab. Generous. Yeah. I mean, they were hoping Sinister. that he would just immediately drink himself to death. But Marino claimed that competition from neighboring speakeasies was forcing him to grant unlimited tabs. Michael Malloy was not really inclined to look this gift horse in the mouth too hard. He just kind of chalked it up to his good luck and proceeded to drink enough alcohol to fell a fucking herd of cattle. <laughs> All day long, every time he set his drink down... I'm not gonna question it. He's not. He just went for it. Every time he set his drink down, Marino would immediately refill it. Then Malloy would basically just pick it up, drink it, set it back down, and get an instant refill. Like one of those drinking bird desk ornaments. This went on for the entire day. Mike wasn't really, like, a sip-and-savor kind of guy, and apparently he just basically pounded cheap whiskey for 12 straight hours. Holy shit. To Marino's absolute horror, Malloy didn't even slow down. <laughs> Marino, 
No, Marino actually got cramps in his arms from lifting the bottle so many times, and Mike's breathing didn't even change. <laughs> this this dude could drink. Eventually, after a full day of drinking like a frat boy on his 21st birthday, Mike stood up, wiped his mouth, thanked Marino for the drinks, and left, saying that he would be back. Like the Terminator. Sure enough, Mike was back the next day and proceeded to do a repeat performance of the day before. The men were sort of hoping that the cumulative effects would maybe wear him down. They were hoping that he would, like, pass out and Jimi Hendrix's way out of the world by choking on his own vomit. But Mike continued to drink this hard for three straight days without any noticeable issues. Holy crap. <laughs> you may try to kill me, but I'm gonna take the cost out of your business. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this actually gets to be a real problem. On the fourth day, Mike Malloy reportedly walked into Marino's in the morning and announced, Boy, ain't I got a thirst. <laughs> so at that point, Tony Marino was just fucking done with this plan. He was like, no, this is not working. And he decides that it is time to kick it up a notch. One of the men involved in the plan wanted to just get it over with and shoot Mike, which honestly would have saved people a lot of time. But the death had to look accidental, i.e., not a murder we committed, if the life yeah. insurance was going to pay out. Yeah, having that whole, I shot him to death, the life insurance, he actually, the life insurance actually won't pay out if you just fucking murder the person yeah. yourself for the money. And I mean, all the shady funeral directors and coroners in the world aren't going to get you a, a declaration of, of accidental if he has a huge fuck-off gunshot wound. Yeah, it's it's pneumonia that he caught through the gaping hole in his temple. That's where it got in. Yeah, and Gosh like darn. this, this has to be a man with three livers. I do not believe this is fully human. This man is a mutant. It's it's amazing how much of an alcohol tolerance you can build when you've just got nothing else to live for. Does he even have blood, or is he? They're just like forty proof whiskey running through his veins. What the. Fuck. <laughs> Would they, did they even have to use formaldehyde on his corpse? Question. Would he even rot? I think you could just honestly put him straight into a jar. Like, he's he's just pickled. He's not well-preserved in the usual sense, but, like, <laughs> I'm willing to bet he hasn't decomposed since he died. No, he probably looks pristine. You could probably open up his coffin and he looked exactly the same as he did in 1932. He's probably killed all the grass near his grave, <laughs> but other than that, well, Tony kept trying to make Mike's death subtle. Sources differ. There's a there's a lot of this. The sources on this are pretty inconsistent, probably because everybody involved in this case fucking lied about what they actually did. They all tried to turn on each other, which made for some conflicting stories, but. Tony started adding various things to Mike's drinks in an attempt to speed up his death. So, according to some sources, Tony started out by mixing antifreeze into Mike's drink. When Mike took numerous shots of antifreeze without any noticeable effect, he upgraded to turpentine, and then a type of horse liniment, which is a veterinary horse ointment, mixed with rat poison. Holy shit. None of it seemed to affect him in the slightest. And, like, I understand... How you don't notice antifreeze. Antifreeze is apparently quite sweet tasting, which is why it's dangerous to animals. But, uh, how do you not notice that you're drinking a horse liniment? 
It's gotta have a funny texture. Never mind turpentine. Yeah, it, it's, it doesn't sound good. Artists have died mistaking their drinking water for their turpentine. And I'm willing to bet they notice quite a bit sooner than Mr. Malloy. Yeah, turpentine is paint thinner, to be completely yeah. clear on this. It's it's a paint thinner. You can strip paint from things with it. And he just, yeah, just drank it and was fine. Because he's an indestructible human goat. If you dip your finger into this for long enough, it will start peeling your skin off. Nah, just, just drink it. It's fine. To be clear, this whole episode comes with a great big do not try any of this at home. Don't drink any of this shit. It will kill you. These are not culinary suggestions. You are not a half-embalmed Irish man from the 1930s. You gotta do some serious training before you attempt turpentine and horse liniment. Yeah, you're not an alcoholic with 15 years of questionable alcohol under your belt. It's like when, like, old-time rulers used to digest small amounts of poisons in order to give themselves a resistance. This man has already drank so much questionable liquor that he's just taking it like a champ. This is a guy who can do a Drano keg stand. So, once horse liniment and rat poison failed to kill him, Tony started feeding him shots of wood alcohol, which we mentioned earlier. Wood alcohol is an old-timey name for methanol. You make it by fermenting wood rather than fermenting fruit. Methanol is also almost hilariously toxic. It's so toxic, it's almost cartoonish. 10 milliliters of the stuff is enough to render you permanently blind because it attacks your optic nerve. And one fluid ounce is enough to kill you. A single shot of methanol will do you in. It is also known by the term denatured alcohol. They use it to, like, sanitize surgical instruments. And, and it's why, because, like, I don't know. Janelle, you're probably familiar with this. There's a lot of people with just terrible lives who will, like, drink <laughs> fucking hand sanitizer. Oh, no, I was like, maybe Jessica's being facetious, but no, I do genuinely know people uh, who drink hand sanitizer, who drink hairspray, uh, that's particularly horrifying, who drink mouthwash. Just, and like, we had a problem when I used bad. to work at the library. It's just like, people kept drinking out of the hand sanitizer dispensers. And like, it's like, you know, you need to stop that. Not just because it's gross, but because you're gonna die. You're gonna go blind, and you're gonna die. Yeah, I mean, it'll get you drunk, it just, you'll also die. Yeah. So, not worth it. It's very cheap, because it serves no purpose as alcohol. All It's it's exempt from all applicable yeah. alcohol taxes, because you, you really can't drink it. It's for, like chemistry and cleaning electronics and sanitizing like ethanol, things. Ethanol is really the only alcohol that human beings can and should drink. It's still poisonous to humans, to be clear. Oh, yeah. uh, ethanol is still toxic to humans, that's why it fucks you up. But you can survive yeah. it with minimal damage. But what alcohol you can't really uh, puke and rally. So, Murphy the bartender went out and bought a couple ten-cent cans of wood alcohol at, like, the fucking hardware store, and decided to try to take Molloy out. He reportedly started Molloy off with a cheap whiskey and then made the switch to methanol when he was already good and intoxicated, 
and they figured that he wouldn't notice. It's, it's not pleasant tasting, but neither is cheap whiskey. The methanol did not slow Mike down in any <laughs> meaningful way, and he did not suffer any apparent medical consequences beyond continuing to get super fucked up. Only discernible medical consequence? Well, he is hammered. <sighs> yeah, and it took several nights of feeding him shots of wood alcohol before they saw any effect. Eventually, a couple of days after they started doing this, he passed out and collapsed to the floor. His breathing became very shallow and ragged, his pulse was weak, and the men finally believed that they had succeeded in killing him. He was left on the floor of the bar in the hopes that he would just sort of die, but several hours later he came to and sat up. Reportedly, actually, he rubbed his eyes, looked at Marino, and said, Give me some of the old regular, me lad. <laughs> This man doesn't want to die, he wants to drink. It is like, oh man, that was a good nap. I'm real thirsty. <laughs> uh, you know, hair of the dog, my boy, hair of the dog. I can't, I, are we sure he is a human being and this isn't, like, <laughs> the extremely drunk inspiration for Superman? Is he actually from the planet Krypton? I'm genuinely asking. This man's love of alcohol outstrips the power of God himself. Uh, honestly, they probably could have shot him and it would have just bounced off his liver. Uh, he's, they probably should have studied him for science. But at this point, murdering Mike was starting to get expensive. He was drinking Tony Marino out of house and home. And since there were so many men involved in the plot to kill him, each man's cut of the profit was already going to be quite small. Mike refusing to die was cutting into their profit margins. So Pasqua decided that it was time to kick it up a notch again. He decided that they should soak a bunch of raw oysters in wood alcohol and feed them to him. I mean... Yeah, it's actually not worse than anything they've done so far. No, that's not much of an escalation. There's only so many places you can go after feeding people wood alcohol for several days. It's hard to escalate from there. It is based on an old belief. People used to believe that combining oysters and alcohol was deadly. Pasqua had heard reports of people dropping dead after consuming this combination, and uh, people, several people actually believed that this was an inherently deadly combination. Uh, for the record, it's not. You can drink and eat oysters all you fucking want. I don't know why you'd want to. That's nasty, but mm. go for it. This feels like people just not understanding allergies. Well, I mean, yeah, I was like, I can't try this unless I want a quick trip of the local emergency room. But, uh, it's also just gross. I've heard from people who are not deathly allergic to oysters that eating an oyster just feels like sucking back a particularly large glob of snot, which doesn't sound appealing to me in any meaningful way. Um, just like the sort of thick lung mucus you get from a good bout of pneumonia. Just... Mmm. Tasty. Mm. Uh, but for the record, yeah, if you if you want to eat oyster snot, you can do it with alcohol. But uh, there is a tiny half grain of truth hidden in this, though. Oysters contain a bacteria called Vibrio vulnificus, which is generally harmless for a healthy person. If you're healthy, go for it. Eat those oysters. Um, if you have compromised liver function, however, uh, you can get a serious Vibrio infection. Chronic alcoholics are actually not allowed to consume raw oysters at all. I mean, they can. Nobody will arrest you. But, but it's you not shouldn't. medically advised. It's not advised. You can get a very deadly infection from this. 
it's similar to how, like, you know, people will sell you shots of Cobra Venom that you can drink, but you shouldn't do it if you have an ulcer. Yeah, stuff like that. You're just, you're not supposed to. Like, it's, it's perfectly safe unless you have, like, a way of it getting into your bloodstream through your digestive tract. Yeah. Also, if you are reaching a point in your life where you are pouring alcohol straight into your oysters, you are probably an alcoholic and should not have them. Like, I don't know if there's a probably in there. Statistically, if you are pouring alcohol onto your oysters, like, <laughs> you have blown past alcoholism and you have reached some kind of zen state. You are reaching Buddhist nirvana levels of alcoholism. You are tearing your family apart, is what you're doing. At a certain point, you break through to enlightenment. That is how much of a drunk you are. Oyster vodka stew, if that sounds like a good idea to you, you should get to a meeting. But, uh, in any case, Mike just ate the oysters, burped, and carried on not dying. <laughs> Joe Murphy, however, saw promise in this let's feed him gross shit angle, though. So for their next trip, they left a can of sardines open on the counter for three days until it was good and rotten. Oh. Or this is this is nineteen thirty-two. Shelf stable fish is not a thing. No. This is food preservation is in its infancy. That shit would be rank after seventy-two hours. Oh, I wouldn't even want to rot it in my house. I'd have to move. No, I can't imagine what that would smell like. I'd have to leave. It would be vile. See, what I like about this is, like, Mike must be thinking that he just has some great pals. Yeah, that's the whole thing. Mike never gets suspicious of these guys at any point. He just thinks these are his good buddies who are looking after him. He in no way catches on to the fact that they're trying to shuffle him off this mortal coil. And in his defense, he is drunk. Like, he is fucked up on yeah. wood alcohol No, he's, he is hammered. You think everybody's your friend when you're hammered. A normal, sober person, when they are given an unlimited tab, would question it. But he thinks they're just being real nice to him. He thinks that, maybe he thinks they feel sorry, but he thinks they're being his buddies. Which is kind of tragic. It makes the whole thing worse. Yeah, because, like, you know, he's this perfectly harmless, homeless drunk. This is not a fair fight. He's no harm to anybody. He's never hurt a soul. And they are taking advantage of his naivete for, like, a dumb fucking yeah. scheme involving so many people that it could never be profitable. Yeah, that's exactly what's happening. And, like, it's not that shocking. I'm like, if you're speakeasy... Is Like, if you are selling an expensive, like, expensively bought, cheaply made product to people who can't buy it elsewhere, and you are still losing money, you're not a good businessman to begin with. I'm not shocked you're also bad at fraud. Yeah, Mike shouldn't have to die because you suck at running a bar. <laughs> and, like, it kind of reminds me how, like, the kind of people who cheat on tests in school are generally speaking the kind of people who aren't very good at cheating either. Your average person who is smart enough to run a business properly would just run their business properly and wouldn't bother cheating people or trying to kill any of their patrons. No, exactly. So for, for their next attempt to kill their patron, 
They took the fish that had been sitting out for 72 hours. They then shredded the sardine can itself and mixed the metal shrapnel in with the rotten fish. They then squished this whole mixture between two pieces of bread and fed the fish and shrapnel sandwich to Malloy. (laughs) Points for creativity. They figured that eating a shredded sardine can would puncture his insides and lead to internal bleeding. To their disappointment, he finished the whole sandwich and asked for another. (laughs) No source. Don't die. Don't die unless you can sign a life insurance policy first. Mike the Goat Um, Malloy. Yeah. For the record, I can't find any articles that state whether they actually gave him another one. I mean, they wouldn't even have one available. Can you imagine the amount of prep that went into coming up with this disgusting combination? It's pretty creative. They can't just head head into the back and carve up another sardine can. (laughs) It's... It's impressive. Um, I mean, I'm making some goat jokes here, but, like, even goats don't actually eat the tin cans. They just eat the paper off of the tin cans. This is amazing. Yeah. I can only imagine how unpleasant that was to shit out later, but again, history does not record. Uh, History does not record the quality of Mike Malloy's next dump. I mean, the dude can't be eating a steady diet. I imagine, like, he, ha- he must be having a bowel movement every four and a half days. This is probably the most roughage he's had in a while. <laughs> it's just some iron in the diet. No no worries. I mean, unless he's been having quite a bit of Guinness, he can probably he can probably use it. Yeah, but apparently when the sandwich thing failed to send Mike into the Great Blue Yonder, uh, the group had a meeting to discuss what they were going to do next. And at this point, it was less about the money and more about personal pride. Marino recalled at this point that his strategy of freezing Mabel to death had worked the first time, so he figured that they might as well just do the same thing to Mike. So the next time Mike passed out from drinking at the speakeasy, they threw him into the back of Pasqua's car, drove him to Cretona Park, and tossed him onto a park bench. They then stripped him to the waist, dumped numerous bottles of water over him, and left him drenched on the bench to freeze to death in the cold winter night. See, I just have this image in my head of, like, somebody watching this in Central Park and just going, like, same shit as usual. Just soaking a defenseless homeless dude in mid-January, as one does. But you can imagine their fucking surprise when Mike turned up again the next day, asking for more liquor and complaining that he had a, quote, wee chill. (laughs) Be goddamn furious. Oh, my good- I'm having a wee chill. My good friend Tony will help me. Yeah, reportedly, he woke up on the bench, crawled the half mile from the park to the speakeasy, passed out in the basement, and woke up several hours later, pretty much none the worse for wear. This is a man who is, one, way too used to waking up miles away away from where he fell asleep, and two, way too accustomed to just, like, autopilot, blackout, drunk locomotion. He's like a homing pigeon that goes back to Marino's. Honest to God. He, uh, and he's also way too trusting. Every time he's in danger, he just goes back to the speakeasy for safety, where they just try to kill him again. Like a hammered homing pigeon. I don't know if if all the pigeons in World War One had just been drunk the entire time. I would have been deeply concerned about operational security. 
At this point, it was nearly February, which meant that payments on all three insurance policies would be due soon. Marino really wanted Mike dead before he had to make another payment on the policies because that would cut into his profits even further. So once again, they decided they had to dial up their efforts to murder Mike. So this time, they decided that they would just pay someone to hit him with their fucking car. I, I mean, that'll generally do it. Usually, you hit a man with, like, a couple hundred tons of steel, he doesn't get back up. Yeah, they used to build cars real sturdy. Yeah, nowadays they have, like, crumple zones and, like, they're, like, 90% plastic. But back in the day, you know, no, this is this is essentially a, for- a sporty little forklift. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. These are military tanks and civilian cars are just one-to-one. You could invade Germany in an ice cream van. Like, this is... <laughs> so... They found an unscrupulous cab driver named Harry Green, who was willing to just run the fuck over Mike for $150 of the life insurance money. Harry became the fifth member of the murder trust. The the core murder trust. There's a whole bunch of people involved in this. A whole bunch of tangential murderees and murderettes. Uh, All men. This is is an all-male operation. Yeah, well, of course it is. (laughs) No. This is too dumb for female murderers. It's This is mouth-breathingly pants-on-heads moronic. It this is stupid. This gets worse. This is this is just some fucking shoelace-eating shit. So the next time Mike passed out, the whole murder trust piled into Harry's cab with Mike Malloy's unconscious form at their feet in the back seat. And then they drove out to a more deserted part of the Bronx to, again, murder him with a car. It seems like the easiest way to do this would have been to just throw Mike in the road and run over him, but they were fully committed to Looney Tunes logic at this point. So Bastoni and Murphy apparently dragged Malloy into the middle of the street and held him up by the arms like he was Jesus on the cross. The cab then drove straight at him with the gas pedal just fucking floored. Apparently, Mike had semi-regained consciousness at this point, and he managed to wriggle away and avoid getting hit the first two times they ran at him. (laughs) Yeah, this guy's not going down without a fight. This guy guy has the durability of a pet rock. Like, he's not going anywhere. Just squirms away like a greased piglet (laughs) the first two times. The first two. The third time, however, the cab struck him square in the torso at roughly 50 miles an hour. Mike slammed into the hood and then crumpled to the pavement, and Green actually then backed the cab over him just to make absolutely certain that he was dead. I mean, I wouldn't trust anything at this point. That's entirely fair. You're wise, Jessica, beyond your years and murdering abilities. At that point, another car came into view, so the murderer of trust had to flee the scene and just trust that he was dead. The next day, they began calling morgues, looking for Mike Malone's body. Joseph Murphy was calling around, calling hospitals, calling morgues, pretending to be a concerned brother, looking for his missing sibling. For five days, though, they were consistently unable to find any news of Mike Malone, and Tony Marino was becoming desperate. At this point, he was beginning to consider just going out and killing a random homeless dude and just passing him off as Mike. So you can imagine how fucking angry he was on day five 
when Mike strolled into the speakeasy, <gasps> limping and a little bandaged, and said, I sure am dying for a drink. Holy fuck. I'd be mad. I'd be a little mad. Just nothing like getting hit dead on by a fucking 1930s taxi cab to give a man a mighty thirst. Mike reported that he had no memory of the incident that had landed him in the hospital. He remembered headlights coming toward him, and the next thing he knew, he was waking up in Fordham Hospital five days later, desperate for a drink. This man is way too used to being way too drunk. Yeah, and I mean, the guy didn't have any ID on him, which was why they hadn't been able to locate him at the hospital. He had been entered up with no name. Honestly, in this whole story... The most impressive thing, though, that Mike survives is the fact that he survived withdrawal after five days without drinking. I bet he'd have the fucking shakes. They're like, are you ready? Are you sure you're ready to get out of the hospital? He's like, let me go! <laughs> yeah, uh, alcoholism is deadly, obviously. But if you are a dedicated alcoholic, uh, quitting drinking cold turkey is also extremely dangerous. Oh, you'd be... You'd be shaken. Yeah, you can get something called the DTs, which is uh, tremors that you get from alcohol withdrawal. In these days, there are drugs that we can give you to stop the symptoms of withdrawal without actually putting more alcohol in your system. Back in the day, the only thing they could really do for you was just give you more alcohol. Um, but withdrawal from alcohol can very much kill you. It's actually what killed um, Amy Winehouse. She did not die of an overdose. She died from withdrawal. It's not a nice way to go. You should- It is not. No, don't fuck around with withdrawal if you're a serious alcoholic. If you have a serious substance abuse problem, please quit under the supervision of a doctor. Um, don't just go cold turkey at cold home and Cold turkey is best. not the way to go. No, it's not a pleasant you, way to go at all. So I'm honestly- You want to wean yourself off. I'm the most impressed that Mike didn't just fucking die of withdrawal in the hospital. It's kind of like how, like, a lot of people who've uh, undergone starvation don't die of starving, but when they come back, they die of refeeding syndrome. Oh, my dog almost died of that. Not because I'm a shitty pet owner, because I adopted her from a foster agency that rescued her from a shitty pet owner. But they were like, yeah, she might not make it. She has refeeding syndrome. And I was like, well, I'll take my chances. And now I live with a six and a half pound rat that bites my roommates and steals all my socks. You're so lucky. Where the fuck is she, anyway? Probably out biting your roommates and eating fucking your socks. You She's literally right behind me, just staring forlornly into my back. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that I'm I'm talking to the invisible machine people again is making her sad. It's okay, Bianca. At this point, Mike had survived being poisoned by pretty much everything that they could find in the garage and under the sink. Uh, he had survived just hilarious amounts of alcohol poisoning. He had been hit by a taxi cab. He had been fed shrapnel and rotten fish. They were just done. They were done. They were done fucking around. Once again, they got Mike completely wasted. They took his unconscious self from the bar, and he was brought to a tenement building on 168th Street and taken to a rented room. A tube was run from a gas light fixture to Mike's mouth, and a towel was wrapped tightly around his face. So they, they literally did not even, they didn't even try to, like, give him carbon monoxide poisoning by just filling the room with carbon monoxide. They're like, no, let's put it right into his head. 
Yeah, we're not taking any goddamn chances. If I don't feed the hose directly into his lungs, I don't believe it's gonna kill him. Yeah. Everyone knows the legend of Rasputin, but, like, Rasputin, he's mostly a story about, like, a bunch of people who had never killed anybody and didn't really know how to do it and fucked it up repeatedly. Yeah, these guys had killed before, and they were like, well, fuck. Fuck this guy. Yeah, like, these are literally confident, unashamed killers who have no idea why this man is not dying. <laughs> also, if you look up uh, Michael Malloy's Wikipedia article, at the bottom it says, See also, Rasputin. Which is fun. Yeah. That's a fun detail. That is very fun. Um, that is very fun. But at this point, I honestly think I would have been too afraid to kill Mike, because I would have been very concerned that he might come back three days later. Like, at this point... Honestly. Like, at this point, you just start handing the guy fish and loaves and see what happens. Like, this is... <laughs> Like, this is how religions are started. Yeah. This shit. Yeah. This could have gone either way. Murder victim or son of God. But yeah, so they weren't fucking around. They put a tube from a gaslight fixture straight into his mouth, turned on the gas, and just held him down. And seven months after agreeing to murder Mike Malloy, he was finally, actually dead. Taken down not by alcohol, sandwiches, or a runaway taxi but by carbon monoxide poisoning. They just put the main directly into him. Yeah, they did. They just piped it straight in. Yeah, but now they had another problem on their hands, which was the fact that they were so eager to kill Mike, they no longer took any measures to make it look like an accidental death. This did not look like an accidental death. It looked like a guy who'd been fucking murdered with a tube of poison gas, because that's what it was. All of this other shit, like, oh, well, maybe he just ate some food, some bad tuna out of a garbage can. Or maybe, because, like, there's tons of species around here, maybe he just, you know, was fed alcohol by a disreputable speakeasy owner, which is actually what happened. But, like, you don't just accidentally, as a homeless man, drink a gallon of carbon monoxide. <laughs> What the fuck? Even even back in the day, they did take efforts to, like, investigate deaths, especially when those deaths are worth quite a lot of money. And never mind, like, leaky gas mains are an incredibly important issue for public safety. Like, yeah. you can casually die of alcohol poisoning. You cannot casually die of carbon monoxide poisoning. I mean, you, you can, but then you're gonna win a lawsuit against Con Edison. But, I mean, New York City uh, still very much uses gas. I have gas in my apartment. They caution you over and over and over and over and over again about the signs of a gas leak. They put uh, a scent in the gas to make it stink. It's it's still very much a problem, but it's... Even back in the day, it was investigated. You... This, this man's worth a lot of money dead. They're going to have to look at his death. Um, so now, what they had to do was they had to pay a questionable doctor to create a fake death certificate for Mike. And the doctor that they found was Dr. Francis Manzella of East Harlem, a former Republican alderman for Harlem. Which is interesting. Weird. Incidentally, I actually walked past the building that used to be Dr. Manzella's Manzilla. practice every day because I live in East Harlem. And I am delighted to announce that what was once his doctor's office is now an almost aggressively terrible restaurant. <laughs> it's this terrifying restaurant. All restaurants in New York City are given an A, B, C... Or, like, don't eat here grade um, mm-hmm. based on their sanitation. 
Uh, honestly, anything less than a B, yep. you're taking your life into your own hands. But, uh, it, yeah, it's, it's, you don't see a lot of C's. I think you can have, like, open mice cooking in the kitchen Ratatouille style, and they will give you a C. I think you need to actually be, like, baking murder victims into pies before they will give your restaurant an actual fail. I wonder if they've been feeding people, uh, spoiled tuna with, with canned shrapnel. Yeah, that's when they shut you down. But this place has a C, and it's it advertises its pork chunk, which is the main thing on the menu. Pork chunk? What is pork chunk? That's the most ominous pork way I've chunk. ever seen meat advertised. Pork chunk. Just a chunk of pork. Just oh, pork no. chunk at a C-grade restaurant. That's what became of this man's doctor's office. Mm, some C-grade pork chunk. Which is incredible. That's just an upsetting unit of meat. It, it's an upsetting way to advertise and prepare meat. It's like if someone offered you a sleeve of soup. I just... Like, yeah, I guess, but that's just an upsetting way for you to put that. But I will defend bag milk for the rest of my life. Oh. Um, bag milk is a tradition. It is beautiful. Exactly. Although as an Albertan Noble. who's never lived in the Canadian East, I actually only have ever drank bag milk once. But I was it was an exciting cultural experience for me. No, tragedy. But they did hire this doctor to create a fake death certificate, and I will let you guess what they put the cause of death as. Uh, alcohol poisoning? Pneumonia! Everybody dies pneumonia. of pneumonia when you've got a fake doctor. It's the only thing that ever kills the homeless. What? He's bright fucking pink! He died of pneumonia? <laughs> yeah, that's what they put on the death certificate, that he died of lobar pneumonia. Carbon monoxide poisoning is not subtle. No, it's not. It's not- none of this the is subtle, skin but no turns cause of death. hot pink! Neither is freezing to death in a block of ice beneath an open window. Don't find it- don't find it suspicious at all when they open up the coffin and they smell rotting eggs? No. No. Because the idea was that nobody was ever gonna see the body. So, Mike was buried in a $10 pine coffin in a $12 discount plot in Ferncliff Cemetery. In Westchester County, just north of the city- and honestly, we should all make pil pilgrimages to his gravesite every year to pray that he grants us longevity and indestructibility. Just stand over his grave and get, get like, a contact high from the fumes? Yeah, but there was, like, a sale on gravesites for poor people, and they were, like, perfect, $12 charity grave. Let's get that shit. Hot damn, that is a deal. So obviously, the murder trust tried to cash in the life insurance policies as quickly as possible. Joe was able to cash out the first $800 policy with no questions, but when he went to collect the other two, the agent asked when he would be able to view the body, which Joe was not expecting. So Joe hastily explained that the body had already been buried basically immediately after death, which made the insurance agent incredibly suspicious, and he notified the authorities. At the same time, tensions were arising among the murder trust. Green, the cab driver, was apparently unhappy with his cut of the money, and he may have sold the others out. He apparently started talking openly about the murders and about how unhappy he was with his cut. Many of the articles about this case cite unsourced, quote, underworld tips, but Green may have been the source of them. Also, at this time, Joseph Maglioni shot tough Tony Bastoni to death. What? For reasons, com yeah, for reasons completely unrelated to Mike Beloy. They were fighting over something. I thought they were friends. My whole world has been a lie. If Tough Tony Bastoni and Maglioni, if they can't make it, then who can in this bitch of a world? 
I can't believe in love anymore. I thought friendship meant something. <laughs> What's a man supposed to believe in? If you can't believe in tough Tony Bastoni and Maglioni. Who can you believe in? What, wh- what kind of anchor do you have in life? What kind of world are we living in? What kind of world? Yes. So Maglioni murdered Bastoni. Again, for reasons completely unrelated to the murder of Mike Malloy. And Joseph was arrested for the murder. That was always going to be the, one of the biggest weaknesses in this whole plot. Is this, there's, there's too many people involved here. Oh, there's way too many weak links. And when loose you ends. have a murder conspiracy that is big enough to have multiple factions... It's too big. <laughs> yeah, you're only murdering one dude. You're not murdering a fucking town. <laughs> like, there are smaller football clubs. Yeah, this is that. You're not committing genocide. Like, dial it back. You don't need staff. You shouldn't require, like, multiple tears in your murder plot. <laughs> How many people does it take to kill one homeless dude? <laughs> also, while investigating this whole thing, Police realized that Mabel Carson had also died under suspicious circumstances while involved with Tony Marino, and that he'd been the sole beneficiary on her life insurance. So, you know, when you have multiple people dying under suspicious circumstances in the vicinity of your speakeasy, and leaving large amounts of life insurance behind to people who work at the speakeasy, yeah, people start to connect the dots a little bit. One death is like a weird, is weird happenstance. Two, the police are getting involved. This is ridiculous. This is getting, yeah, you get one freebie, and then after that, no, you're just, you're pushing it. Eventually, police gathered enough evidence to bring the whole murder trust in on charges. Marino, Pasqua, Kreisberg, Green, and Murphy were all brought up on murder murder charges, and the doctor was charged with accessory to murder. The murder trust initially all tried to plead insane. Uh, when that didn't work, they all pointed the fingers at each other. When that didn't work, they tried to pin the whole thing on tough Tony Bastoni because he was dead and could not defend himself. <laughs> this is absurd. You cannot claim insanity. Because, like, insanity as a legal standard, people tend to misunderstand it. People t- tend to misunderstand Like, pleading insanity is like, oh, I have a mental illness. Pleading insanity means you are literally not capable of telling right from wrong when you committed the crime. There is no way to make that case when you have a conspiracy. Yeah. This was a dubiously organized murder at best, but it is way too organized to justify an insanity plea. Also, honestly, like, you should... Probably have started with blaming the dead guy. Don't make that- it's way less convincing when that's your third defense. Right, aim for the most plausible excuse your first time. Yeah, so unfortunately for them, none of their defenses work, and the whole lot were convicted of murder, and the doctor was convicted of accessory to murder. Marino, Pasqua, Kreisberg, and Murphy were all executed by electric chair in the summer of 1934 at the infamous Sing Sing prison just north of New York City. Green and the doctor avoided the electric chair, serving a few years in prison before being released. I mean, apparently they weren't as durable as Mike was. No, turns out no. That killed them the first try. I bet if they'd try to electrocute Mike, 
They would have just smelt chemical cleaners, and he would have woken up two hours later and asked for a drink. Oh, yeah, bits would have fallen off him, and he would have kept drinking. Like, yeah, just this man just determined not to die. He's basically a golem made out of alcohol. His his hair would have lit on fire like a candle, and but, like, he would have lived. Yeah, so Michael Malloy may be gone, but his spirit lives on. He's considered something of a New York City folk hero, and he is memorialized in several songs, most notably You Can't Kill Michael Malloy by the Spent Poets. It has no lyrics, so I'm not actually sure why it's about Mike Malloy, but it's kind of a bop. It's it's a it's a hell of a jam. But that is the uh, that's the sordid tale of Mike the Durable, the murder of Mike Malloy. Ah, uh, poor Iron Mike. You didn't deserve it, man. You didn't deserve it. No, he deserved better. Also because he was maybe definitely the son of God. Maybe... <laughs> just... <laughs> Jesus thought his second time through he was just gonna live it up. Holy shit. Holy shit. Like I said, should've just started bringing the guy to surface to large bodies of water and handed him fish and loaves. Yeah, just see what happens. See where I, we go. I bet he could've walked across the, uh... Walked across the river to New Jersey. <laughs> I haven't a doubt. Yeah. Find a dead guy named Lazarus, see what happens. Well, we hope you, that you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, don't do any of this at home. No, uh, please do not murder the homeless for financial gain. Yeah. Please don't drink wood alcohol. Do not engage in insurance fraud. Don't and consume horse liniment. Don't mix shredded tin cans with, with fish. Yeah, don't do any of it. Do not. No. Uh, I'm Jessica. And I'm still Janelle. And we have we are fat, French, French and, and fabulous. fabulous.